Hey there, church family. Uh, we're so grateful that you've joined us at Cedar Mill Online. This is an awesome platform to be able to engage with what's going on in our church family. But we do have our services every 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock here in the Worship Center. We'd love to see you at some point here. Um, thank you for joining us. We're starting a brand new teaching series throughout the next three weeks um, through the book of Haggai. No, I did not just sneeze right there. And then, yes, it is a book in the Bible. It's an Old Testament minor prophet. It's a book that many of you might be familiar with, but most likely you may not remember this if you've read through the entire book because it is so short. Um, But let me just say that this book is both extremely timely and it's timeless. It's super timely for our current setting and culture with what's going on right now, but it is it is timeless. This happened a long time ago, but it is just as relevant today. Um, this book is prophetic to a certain group of people at a certain time, but I think it's just as prophetic to Christ followers in our time, 21st century Portlanders, um, in a time of political chaos, financial stress, constant change, and there's more things than ever to be discouraged by, and boy, does this does this just recenter us and give us hope um, for the days ahead? So this book, it's only two chapters. It's 38 verses total. So my encouragement, read this throughout the, the, this next uh, few weeks. I just encourage you, read through this multiple times, and may God just speak each time you read through it. Um, it's small, but its impact is absolutely, um, I think, life-changing if, if we allow it to. Um, and, it, and it points us to our priorities as it relates to God. So this book, this book serves as kind of like a recalibration is kind of how I see it of turning our hearts in the right direction and giving the work of our hands more meaning and more purpose in this life. Um, the subtitle to this series is um, commitment, calling and comfort. And we're going to see these things come up through the book of Haggai. These realities pop up and we'll unpack what those um, implications have for us today. So my prayer for this series is that we would be reminded of God's presence with us in the mess of life. I think there's no greater message than we need that God is with us in the mess that we find ourselves in. When we are rescued by God himself, we then have a purpose that's far beyond our own lives, far beyond our, our, um, our own kingdoms. Um, so it paints like this bigger vision of why we were rescued in the first place, not so that we can check out and keep our eyes fixed on our own smaller kingdoms, Um, that we might be building in life, but it keeps our eyes directed on the greater kingdom that will never be destroyed, that Jesus himself has established and he is establishing in and around the world through his people, you and I. He has rescued us for a grand and eternal purpose. Let's be reminded of that. The whole book clarifies this simple phrase. It is this, the priority of God's kingdom in the life of God's people. What is the book of Haggai about? It's about the priority of God's kingdom, the priority of God's presence in the life of God's people. So to understand this short book, we need a lot of backstory because we're gonna jump right into an event taking place that would otherwise be confusing. So you may have heard this phrase, context is king. In order to understand that, we, we need to understand the context so that we can translate that into our day and time. Um, so here, here's the history. Israel, God's people, crosses the Red Sea. God closes in, destroys their enemies. He rescues them. It's a very uh, victorious moment. And eventually God's going to talk to Moses on Mount Sinai and give him the law. He's going to bring people out of slavery into a covenant community together. 
And they're going to spend the next 40 years walking around in the desert before eventually God brings them into the promised land. And what happens in the book of Haggai is actually going to take place 800 years later, 800 years after that. And what we'll find is that even though Israel has been in the promised land, all this time the kingdom is still divided. In fact, after King David's rule, his son Solomon steps up and finishes the temple where God is going to dwell in Jerusalem. And then after Solomon dies, um, his kingdom splits into two. One half is ruled by his son Jeroboam, just north of Jerusalem, known as Israel. And his other son Rehoboam will lead the southern kingdom of uh, Jerusalem, known as Judah. Um, So 800 years earlier, God tells Israel after they cross the Red Sea, he says, I've brought you into a new life. I've brought you into a new covenant. And if you go back to your old life, like your forefathers lived, it will lead you back into slavery. So fast forward 800 years later, we're seeing that start to take place. Israel started to forsake God and they set their heart on other affections and idols. And in comes the foreign army of Assyria. And the Assyrians ransack, knock out, and take out the entire northern kingdom of Israel. They take all of them, and the Assyrians rule over them for about 130 years until another kingdom comes in, the Babylonians, and they come in and shred the Assyrians who have taken over the Israel slaves, and and they also go down and shred Judah, okay? And, And they destroy the temple as they do this. God's presence, his temple, his dwelling place is reduced to rubble. And what the Babylonians do is they take all of the Jews and they, they haul them up 900 miles away into captivity for the next 50 years. They, they weren't allowed to worship their God in this place. They were under extreme oppression. And after 50 years, God sends another kingdom to come in known as the Persians. So the Persians come in, they shred the Babylonians. It's kind of like King of the Hill, if you remember that, that game back in the day. Um, not, not so much a game in this case. It was actually really, really uh, a hard thing to, to see and read. But the difference is that the Persians are a lot more religiously tolerant. So, so they say, we're going to still rule over you. But if you want to go back home, you're, you're free to do that. If you'd like to go the 900 miles back home, you can do that and go and worship your God. And a very small, brave group of 50,000 people, they go, we'll take you up on that offer. We'll go back home. And the vast majority stay back. They have grown comfortable with their lives. They start syncretizing with the Persians. If you want to learn more about that, read the book of Esther. All those who go back... They go back to rebuild in three different areas. The book of Haggai and Zechariah are going to focus on rebuilding the temple um, because the temple is the most important thing. It's the, it's the place where God's presence dwells. If you read the book of Nehemiah, that zeroes in on the rebuilding of the city and its walls. And if you read the book of Ezra, it focuses on the rebuilding of the people themselves. So God is going to rebuild the temple, he's going to rebuild the city, and he's going to rebuild the people. For our sake, we're looking at Haggai, the rebuilding of the temple. The temple is where God himself dwells. It's the main priority if you claim to be a God-honoring, God-fearing person. It's the thing that matters most in the life of God's people. It's where people access God. It's where people access the God who set them free and who has the power to set them free and has done that time and time again. And when the people prioritize the temple and the rebuilding of it, they were prioritizing time with God. They were giving him the first fruits, the best of their lives. But for 50 years while they were in slavery, his temple had been left in ruins. And these people who come back to the city, 
to set things right, to finally worship their God once again, this, these 50,000 brave souls. They start laying the foundation of the temple. It's finally starting to happen. Everything's looking great. And then some distractions come along. The nearby Samaritans say that the Israelites are back rebuilding God's temple to worship. And they say, we don't like what we see here. So they start writing, writing letters to the king of Persia, asking him, what in the world do you think you're doing allowing them to come back and build this temple? The Samaritans feared that they would build this in their city and that their God would raise up and Yahweh would come in and destroy them. So the Samaritans say to the Persians, you take them out or we will. Those rebuilding the temple hear this and instant fear settled in for them. Instant fear settled in for them. And instead of rebuilding the temple, they spend the next 15 years focusing on their own homes while the Lord's house lays in ruin. 15 years they stopped working because they were scared. 15 years they've neglected God's presence and God's kingdom. So from the context that we've already seen as I'm building this up, that's been set up, there's so many practical implications. So let's simply bridge that gap. So the translation from their time and their setting into our time and our setting I think it's an easy translation, and here's the question I want us to ponder here. In this year of discouragement, in this season of confusion and fear, what has stopped you from prioritizing the things of God? It's in this backdrop that the prophet Haggai comes along. This guy was sent by God to motivate these people back to work and, and back to doing the things that matter most as people of God. And Haggai gives these people four different messages. We've broken this into three different sermons, but today we're, we're looking at that first message. So let's dive in. In the first verse, we're going to see key dates and key players that are important. The book is unique in that um, many of the Old Testament books, we kind of estimate when they were written. This one's really unique where it tells us literally the exact month, date, down to the day, year, date, month, exactly when he spoke. It's actually August 29th, 520 BC, which is very unique. But Haggai 1 verse 1, listen up. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, it's very specific, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Zerubbabel, is the the political leader. Joshua is the spiritual leader. And then in verse two, the Lord comes along through Haggai, and this is what happens. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So God, through Haggai, is restating an excuse that they've been making for 15 years. And this is their excuse. It's just not quite time yet. And you have to know they were terrified for their lives and it led them to a very detrimental theology or understanding of God. And the Israelites began to believe this. If it's hard, then it must not be God's will. If it's scary, then it must not be God's will. If it's confusing, then it must not be God's will. If seeking God's presence is difficult and confusing and people are threatening you, if you do anything about it, then God's hand must not be in it. And so they quit building after they lay a measly foundation um, and they say, we're going to wait for the right time. And now it just doesn't seem like the right time to pursue God's presence. Once again, the practical question that we need to ask ourselves as Christ followers, what is an area of your walk with God that you have abandoned 
because it has become difficult. You have abandoned because it just doesn't seem like the right time. What area of life have you come to the conclusion that it's just not time yet? Maybe for you, it's finding a group of people to do life with in church. And you've been saying, ah, it's just not time. I'll wait for the right time. Or um, I'm going to wait for things to open back up. Like that, that's, that's when I'll do it. Or maybe you're thinking, I've been meaning to really get to know my neighbors, but it's just not the time. Like people are in a weird place, like contact-wise. It's just not time. There's an excuse there. Or I've been meaning to make a rhythm of prayer and scripture reading in my life, but it's just not the season, you know? Like I will in the next season. What is it for you and your walk with the Lord that you've been putting off simply because you have concluded that it's just not time yet? It's just too difficult for too many reasons. Our world and culture says, that if it feels good, do it. This comes in direct conflict with scripture as Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Difficulties in life do not resemble God's absence. I think we need to hear that. Just because something is difficult does not mean that God is absent from it. In fact, it's in the difficult times of life that God's power is made perfect. Let's continue Haggai um, chapter, er, chapter 1, 3, and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lay, lays in ruins, lies in ruins? You, you've got to see the sarcasm or the connection that God makes to the word time. So the excuse is that we don't have time or it's not the right time. And God is, is like, oh, it's not time to build my house, but it sure seems time to build your house. Did I tell you to build your house? And I, I guess it's, it's your time and it's not my time is what God is saying here. And a lack of time doesn't seem to be the issue here. The issue seems to be misplaced priorities and commitments to what matters most. They have misplaced priorities. Man, man, do we struggle with that. Let me clarify, God's not anti-house. He, he, he didn't want them to be exposed to the elements until the temple was built. But what the issue was is one word in verse four that will change the entire coloring of this book. One word that if you were in Jerusalem in this time, you would go, oh, we totally missed the ball. I see what you're saying. And it's the word paneled. Go ahead and underline that word paneled. We're, we're gonna find out in verse eight about cedar wood paneling. But in Israel, Israel is not a woodworking community. They are a stoneworking community. So even to this day, you cannot build in Jerusalem unless you use the limestone that's resident to that area. And the only way you're going to get wood to panel your house is if you go way up north, past the borders of Israel, into Phoenicia and Lebanon. There you would harvest those trees and you would take them back and you would panel your house with those. Typically, only the wealthy would be able to do something like this. Um, and, and this gives us a lot of context that's important because God is going to say to these people, you've spent countless hours, you've traveled countless miles, you've spent countless amounts of energy, countless amounts of money and resources to trick out your house, to trick out your crib, for some of you younger people, for, for your name, all while my house, which is for my name and my kingdom, which will never be taken away, lays destroyed Let's think about our priorities here in this. There my house lies in ruins. I've become the laughing stock of the nations. Something doesn't seem right here if you're my people. Let me be clear, the issue here isn't wealth. God's not condemning wealth or owning nice things here. 
The issue here isn't time. They've had more time on their hands than ever before getting to go home. They, they've had the same 15 years as anybody else, and they're not in slavery. The issue here isn't laziness. They're super motivated. They're getting their hands dirty, going all Chip and Joanna Gaines on their own houses, right? It's an issue of the heart. A love for self detached from the love of God. The problem here is disordered priorities. It's misplaced commitments. And the things we prioritize always come from the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you want to know where your heart is, look at where your hands are involved. Look at your bank statement. Look at your weekly schedule. The heart steers the hands. Your priorities reveal where you have placed your heart. And based on the fruit of your hands, you can tell the direction of your heart. It's a heart issue that God is concerned with here. And so what God does in, in verse 5 is he calls a bit of a timeout. And he says, let's do a little self-assessment here. Let's evaluate how things have been truly going for you the last 15 years while you have been pursuing your own life here. Let's see how well you've done for yourself as you've neglected my presence in your life. Um, Haggai 1, 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That it could underline that or write that down. If the church could be challenged today, I believe this would be the challenge right here. Church, 21st century, Cedar Mill Church, consider your ways. Another way to say this is give careful thought to your lifestyle. I, I read an article a couple weeks ago about the striking number of people who claim to be Christian and live a lifestyle that looks no different than a non-believer, other than the occasional appointment that they have on Sunday morning. There is a problem with that. And what he's saying is, let's take an honest look at our lives. If I can be honest, I see a lot of people considering everyone else's ways and neglecting to consider their own ways. I struggle with this. That's why I bring this up is with other people's lives and beliefs on display through news outlets and social media, we have become masters at considering everyone else's ways and neglecting the challenge to consider our own ways. It's so easy to spot if someone else hasn't made God a priority in their life, isn't it? It's so easy to be like, man, I've considered their ways. Is God really a priority in your life? But, but in this, it's like, man, let's be challenged to consider our ways, both personal and communal as a church, our way of living and whether or not God is the priority. Like, is that the thing that we always come back to? And what God, what God does is he, he helps them think through their ways of living and how it's been working for them. Verse six, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, have, you, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So these people have all the basic necessities of life, but they lack satisfaction. They lack fulfillment. This is a life lived for self alone, one that has no return on its investment. We all know what it's like to work for a paycheck for it to seemingly disappear. Like, did I really do anything? Like, I have nothing to show for it. A life without God does not lead to abundance. A life without God does not lead to abundance. It's one that always leaves us empty and striving for more. And jump down to nine, verse 9 real quick. He summarizes this. He says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. There's a huge theological point here. 
God was doing something very interesting. These people who once prioritized God and knew that he was the source of true life and had saw his hand free them from slavery in the past, these people slowly began to shift their priorities away from God. So what God does is he shows them just how lame life is on their own and their inability to be truly satisfied apart from him. You can read more about that in Romans 1. There's some great insight about this type of lifestyle. And the danger with this passage is to draw the conclusion that when you don't follow God, he's just going to blow everything away. He's just going to blow your life up. That is not true. In, in, in this instance, I believe God is acting as a loving father and saying no to some of the things that will lead to destruction in their life. And here's the point. He's actually allowing the natural consequences of a life lived for self alone to take place. He's saying, hey, th- these are the natural consequences. You just simply aren't satisfied. Uh, a pastor friend of mine always used to say, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fit in. And, and we're on a journey of trying to stuff everything in there and we just will f- come up void. We will not be fulfilled until he is in the proper place of our lives. He's wanting to remind them of their desperate need for him and his presence and that the alternative route leads to captivity. The culture surrounding us is all about my life. But let's be reminded that God's economy is backwards from ours and from our world You have been saved and liberated from sin, not so that you can spend the rest of your days on earth building your own kingdom and pouring your own resources into a bag that has holes in it, because that's what it will do. But you've been saved to spend the rest of your days and pour the rest of your resources into a kingdom that can never be taken away. That's God's kingdom. His glory in Jesus Christ should consume and capture our hearts to such a point that he becomes the priority. He becomes the focal point. Because of Jesus, we are not our own. We have a calling on our lives. You have a calling on your life now. C.S. Lewis writes about this in in this book called The Weight of Glory, and he's writing about our natural desire to want to accumulate and how we try to find our significance in all these earthly things. Listen to what he says. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And this is the, this is the phrase. He says, we are far too easily pleased. It is the lesser things that seem to capture our attention, isn't it? It it is temporary, shiny, quick fixes that draw us in. And I want to honestly, want you to honestly ask yourself, what lesser things are capturing your heart and attention in this season? What paneled houses have my hands busy while God's presence remains neglected? Maybe you've been thinking, I'll invest in God's kingdom when? Back to the time. Maybe, maybe when things open back up, no masks are required or involved. And, and maybe when the dust settles from difficult conversations we's, we've had as a church, then I'll start investing in kingdom purposes. Or maybe when I get that new job, or maybe when I get into that new house, or maybe when my schedule changes and I have more time, like when my toddler's in school, or maybe when I retire, then I'll do it when the time is right. And friends, the time to build God's temple, the time to invest in the presence, his presence on earth is now, today. The time to love your neighbor well, the time to lean into spiritual practices and pursue being in the comforting arms of our father is right now starting today. 
the motto of the world is that classic old school um, commercial. You've heard it. It's my money and I want it now, <laughs> right? It's my money and I want it now. The motto of the church should be, it's God's kingdom, so I'm building now. It's God's kingdom for God's glory who is worthy of all honor and praise and my life exists for him, not when the time seems right, but starting today. And thus God says, consider your ways. May we consider our ways, friends. And the question becomes, what do you do when you realize the life that you've built just isn't leaving you fulfilled? What do you do when you realize the life that you have, that has you've been living so far um, is far more about your kingdom advancement than God's kingdom advancement. What do you do when your life seems like the, the bag with holes in it or a purse with holes in it? And here's what I think we do is we pursue the wisdom found in verse eight. Check this out. Haggai chapter one, verse eight says, go up to the hills, the same hills you hiked to get these panels to trick out your house, to the, that, uh, to, Take your resources, take your ambition, take your talents that you've been putting into your house, take your money, take your life that I have blessed you with up the hill. And then it says, and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So in other words, spend your life using the resources, time, talents, treasures that God has given you. Use those to magnify his name, not yours. Adjust your priorities, fix your eyes on the one who has liberated you and now give it all up for him, knowing that there is no other way to find true joy, that that is the way we were created to live our lives. If you wanna patch the hole up in your purse, this is the way you do it. Do you want true satisfaction in this life? Seek the presence of God. That is the anchor for our soul. I, I think there are people here today tuning in who feel like they are at a loss because they've gone down every road in life and they're like, man, I've just been, I've just come up empty. I thought I'd find it in this relationship or this friendship or this club or, or whatever it is. They've gone down every road and my invitation is Jesus's invitation where he said, come and see. I dare you to come and see that he is good. Come and see, just come and check out Jesus. I promise you something is going to happen as you encounter him. Verse eight, in a very real sense, is repentance. Saying, you know what you were doing before. Well, I'm gonna ask you to change directions. Repentance in the most basic definition is changing directions. I was going this way and all the skaters out there, I did a 180 and I'm going the other direction. He, he, he's saying, stop heading in the direction that you're going that is producing the same results and walk towards me. Come and see, I dare you to try it. Go the other direction. The definition of insanity, some of you know this, is going, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I think repentance is waking up to the fact that that's insane and saying, I'm going to choose God this time. In Matthew 6, Jesus invites us, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything will be added to you. Next, in Haggai, we see that reality becoming true, taking place in the people of God. Listen to how they respond to this. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, what do they do? Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared the Lord. So they obeyed and then they feared God. Like the first act of repentance actually has nothing to do with the hands and it has everything to do with the heart. 
remember, idolatry isn't about wealth, but the love of it. It's like this posture towards it. Um, so, so when we repent, it's about returning our hearts into a posture of loving God. So they fall on their faces in reverent worship of the Lord, and they feared God more than they feared man. That, write that down. They feared God more than they feared man. What would our faith begin to look like if we truly had more fear of what God thought of us than what people thought of us? What if we were more concerned about what God thought than we are about what everybody else is thinking about? If, what if we truly lived for an audience of one? And our only aim was to, in obedience, love and serve him forever. Man, that would shift my faith. I need to hear that. In Haggai 13, verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and it says, I am with you, declares the Lord. This is a firsthand look at the grace of God. Like, it would have been completely understandable for God to say, you had your chance to follow me, I'm done with you. But he said, even though you weren't pursuing a life with me, I want to be with you. Even though you don't deserve another chance, I'm gonna give it to you. Even, and he says, turn around and you will see that I am with you. What a beautiful reminder for us today. You may have forgotten in this season, but be reminded God is near. He is with you. He is accessible to you. We're losing sight of this, but you are not repulsive. You Actually, may you grow in confidence today that we serve Emmanuel, God with us, who is in our mess with us, sitting there. And we continue, Haggai 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit, he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. They're all stirred up, and, and they came, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And it tells the exact time of when this happened. So put in other words, God's grace got them fired up. They go, we fear you. And he goes, but I'm with you. And they're like, oh my goodness, let's do this. The word that God gave them was all they needed to be reminded of the priorities in their life. And I dream of that for this church, for Cedar Mill. May we be reading God's word and getting fired up about realigning our our priorities to go in the direction that is glorifying God. Let's join hands in pursuing God's presence and God's priorities above all else in this season. We see that when the Israelites were reminded of their priorities, when their hearts were in the the right place, their hands were in the right place. True heart change will always have hands that follow. So the challenge and the response is simple, but my prayer is that it's life-altering for us as, as we consume this. For some of you today, my prayer is that you would walk at, well, that you would end this video, I should say. You'd walk out of the room that you're sitting in with a completely different mindset and priority shift than you did when you came and sat down. And here's the challenge. My challenge is exactly the challenge that God had for the people here um, at this time in this place. And we've, we've transferred that over. And here it is. Number one, consider your ways. And the second thing, I want you to list out distractions, the distractions that have kept you from prioritizing um, the presence of God in your life. And then I want you to list out the resources that you have, the resources you've been investing as you've been neglecting God's priorities in your life. Where have you been putting those resources? And then finally, I want you to sit in God's presence. Sit there in God's presence. For something to become a priority, it has to capture our hearts And my final invitation is allow Jesus to capture your heart in a new way this week. Just like God had captured the people's hearts in this story, 
Maybe today has been revealing for you and you have concluded that prioritizing God's presence is the most important thing in your life. Make it a priority this week. Sit with Jesus and invite him to capture your heart and to direct your loves and longings in his direction. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for for today, for, for this word that you've given us. And as people are sitting in their living rooms or driving in their car, maybe they're on a run, I just pray that you would capture their hearts, tug their hearts in a new way and, and help shift their priorities. Help, help them identify where it is that they may be discouraged from prioritizing you. And I pray that we would be able to see those, name those and say, I'm gonna shift this and I'm going to be encouraged by what your word says that you're gonna be with me through this, that you are gracious to me. You don't condemn me for having uh, misplaced priorities, but you, you correct that and you point me in the right direction. I pray that repentance would be had where we find our place and we would change directions. So God, have your way in us in a similar way that you had an impact on the people in Haggai's story here. We wanna, we wanna shift our priorities in your direction. We love you, Jesus. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen.